Listener discretion is advised, as this content is intended for adult audiences only. Hidden Signal Q-Code presents Hidden Signal, The Things We Owe. It got so cold one year that the snow didn't have time to melt on Lake Michigan. It just kept falling and falling, piling up so that the waves, carried by the wind and the moon and whatever else was under the surface that knew what was coming, looked like rolling balls of cotton, smashing up against the point. Eventually, the snow got so heavy that the water stopped rolling, and a little while after that, stopped being water altogether. Even after the clouds were empty, long fingers of mist reached up beneath the ice and bridged the gap between the lake and the sky, and you could walk through them if you were brave enough to face the risk that the lake wasn't as frozen as everyone thought. It felt like how a ghost would feel, drifting through ancient Rome, pillars that aren't there, or vice versa, pillars that were there, but you weren't. Maybe it wasn't like being a ghost at all. Still, go out far enough and it started to feel haunted. All wind and creaking ice that you couldn't see through but sounded like voices moaning up at you. Not that Andrew knew anything about that. Not from personal experience, anyway. He would read all about it in Jetta's notes. He knew she was just filling them out for their lab work, but he liked to think she wrote them the way she did just for him made it so he felt like he was actually there, next to her, on the ice. But it stayed consistent. She would go out into the frozen lake, drill until she hit water, and test the samples to see if the ice was shrinking and what it was doing to all the microbes that lived underneath. One day, she managed to convince Andrew to come with her to the water's edge. But Andrew saw half a fish sticking out of the ice, frozen solid, and realized how very little he wanted to wind up like that. And so he opted to stay behind as she disappeared behind the fingers. He walked a few blocks back once she was out of sight and grabbed a burrito from Maravillas. Normally, he hated them. It didn't exactly taste like meat, but it was warm and it was open, which was more than could be said for 90% of the restaurants in Hyde Park. By the time he got back, trudging through snow so high the plows hadn't had a chance to knock any of them down, he was out of breath but not as out of breath as Jetta, who stood, doubled over at the water's edge next to the half fish, gasping for air and shivering. The burrito dropped in the sand as Andrew raced towards her, grabbing her face and pulling it up, like they do in the movies. But this didn't feel heroic or rescue-like or even romantic adjacent. There was nothing said as their heavy breathing got carried away by the wind. Jetta would be fine in a few minutes saying that she had felt alone out there and her ears had been playing tricks on her and that she had never expected that she would go crazy in the tundra, but she no longer wanted to collect samples and they should just conclude their study because she was convinced that, over the call of the wind, from beneath the ice, she had heard a bubbly voice, like whale song, moaning out for help. She would say she was fine and refuse to take a half day off. But a few months later, when the sun came back and Chicago lost its gray and all the ice melted and hundreds of dead mermaids that no one knew existed washed up on shore, Jetta was the only one on Earth not surprised. 
Government agencies started arguing over who got jurisdiction over the beach. They cordoned off the area with tape that froze and shattered, then ropes that froze and stuck. Andrew never ventured over there, but from his apartment, he could still hear the occasional walkie-talkie chatter. He would pretend to be able to discern which voice belonged to which agent, but since it was usually just him in his apartment, he couldn't exactly lie to himself like that. He liked being alone, mostly. He definitely didn't mind avoiding the agents, who started hiring private security after dozens of attempts to break in and steal a mermaid from college students, locals, and one very determined sushi chef. They carried guns, which, in Andrew's mind, just seemed like a challenge. We have all the toys on the playground, but you can't take them from us. Apparently, Jetta felt the same way. Rather than decline the invitation, she ran headfirst across the playground and grabbed the nearest basketball. Or in this case, corpse. She brought it into the lab while he was running a PCR on some bacteria he found in his shower drain. Independent studies always help distract him from bigger and more terrifying things. Before, those things included asking Jetta out, successfully avoided for five years and counting, asking for a raise, avoided for three years until Jetta asked for him, and going outside in the winter without a third jacket after loaning Jetta one of his. What was he, an idiot? Now, however, he was distracting himself from the smell of rotting corpse that shrouded the entire south side in a pall. She kicked open the door because why not make an even more dramatic entrance with a 12-foot-long creature slung over her shoulders? Andrew never understood how Jetta was always able to blend so easily into the background. For him, she had always been an unavoidable light. And now, with the corpse, Andrew was downright befuddled. No matter how many vanilla or lemon or mountain lodge or street taco-scented candles he had lit in his studio overlooking the lake, two blocks from the point, five from the science center, a steel and a dream home, he had told himself, he could still smell them. He had since sworn off sushi, locks, poke, and pizza. At least he rented and didn't own. Otherwise, he'd probably have to distract himself from property values as well. Not that there was a distraction big enough for the leaking mermaid corpse that now occupied an entire lab bench, and then some. Hair and tail draping off opposing edges. She was slender, no breasts, and 100% muscle. Her skin was translucent and wrinkled. Her whole body had pruned itself, and she seemed to be sagging, was the best word for it in Andrew's mind like she was slightly melted or deflated. Maybe she had some sort of ancillary filtration sack still filled with water. Her hair was a tangled mat that looked like that sheep in Ireland that had gone missing for six years and came back with 50 pounds of wool. Her fish half, honestly it was more like fish three quarters, was beautiful. Scales brightly colored like mother of pearl, perfectly shaped. For some reason, Andrew had expected the appearance of legs rising up inside the scales, as if this were some kind of sleeping bag. But no, smooth all the way down in a seamless taper ending in a tail that had a few claw marks in it. Or bite marks. She had lived. No. She had survived. Living was for people, and with all of the battle wounds it was clear that the mermaid was 
too far animal to be a person. Andrew had forgotten that. They were the Ichthian version of a chimp in a tux. Or not. He didn't want to offend mermaids, or chimps for that matter. Her nails were long. Good. Back to her body. Andrew was bad enough navigating the social politics of people, let alone mer-people. He was glad he lived above the surface, where claws like hers weren't necessary as a defense mechanism. Just thick skin and sarcasm. The whole time he had been making his observations, Jetta had remained silent, perched on the opposing lab bench, chewing at her nails, a habit Andrew knew she had gotten back into after her father's heart attack and subsequent stay in the hospital. She had taken three months off of work to take care of him, which meant Andrew had had to do all of the field work and he had counted every day until she got back. He had briefly hoped her father would die so that she would return that much sooner. But he realized that was terrible, and he was relieved when she reported that her father was on the up and up. That would have eaten him alive had the old man died. And there's no defense mechanism against guilt. Noodles Etc. was the closest restaurant that delivered, so Andrew ate chicken cow soy, and Jetta had shrimp pad thai five feet from a dead mermaid. Andrew thought Jetta's choice was insensitive, but he said nothing, as it had at least gotten her to stop chewing her fingers. She had long since done away with the nails and was now gnawing at flesh, letting tiny drops of blood hit the lab bench like raindrops, or snowflakes. Andrew couldn't decide if that was poetic or not to think of them that way. He never really understood poetry in the first place. Although, sitting next to the mermaid, as deflated as she was, definitely shed some light on the subject of all those stories from weathered men. Of course they were weathered, they were pirates. Or sailors. But Andrew preferred pirates, about sirens rising from the deep. Maybe that was what Andrew never got about poetry, the fascination with dying. Well, could it talk? Andrew looked up at her, broth dripping off the noodles onto his lap. He choked them down, wiping his mouth with his sleeve, a habit he still hadn't left behind in grade school. What? Please. I need to know if the noise I heard was this thing crying out for help. How am I supposed to even tell? Andrew could tell Jetta was getting frustrated, but so was he. She was asking the impossible. She was a scientist. She should have known better. I don't know, Andrew. Does she maybe... Just maybe have a larynx? It's impossible to tell where that would be. We've got to do this starting in the chest cavity. What do you mean it's impossible? Well, I don't even know if this thing... She... She is mammalian or reptilian, or something in between. And even though she looks humanoid, what if she's got an entirely different organ makeup? She could have seven hearts and a bladder the size of a dozen coconuts. Seriously, Andrew? Little bit of both? Fuck, just humor me, okay? If you have no idea where it might be, if it's there... Then is there honestly any harm in starting where it might logically be? Logic is a strong- Jesus fuck, Andrew! And with that, she hopped off the lab bench, pushed her way past Andrew, and left, leaving behind nothing but some leftover tie and silence. Andrew slid the shrimp into the garbage, 
although for weeks later he would wonder if that was better or worse than eating them and making sure the mermaid's brethren didn't die for nothing. The university was small, size-wise, and in terms of how many students went there. You could recognize people even if you had never met them. And yet, Andrew didn't even know Jetta existed for the first half of freshman year. They shared plenty of classes, but who could find anyone in the gaping maw of 300-student intro to biology lectures? The second quarter, they met at one of the dozen parties Andrew would attend and then Velcro himself to the wall of. Watching the actions and interactions, nursing his old style, he was invisible. And she saw him. Later, he told her just that. And she told him he had stolen that from the perks of being a wallflower. He lied and said it wasn't intentional, but it was. She had looked like the type of person who liked feelings, heavy reads like that. So out of his comfort zone, but he liked it. She intrigued him and kept him on his toes. After they met, they talked briefly at every party and noticed each other in classes and amongst the sea of student bodies walking across the wintry quad. Andrew was particularly proud of that one as it was impossible to see who was under thick layers of parkas and coats and seven scarves, or one exceptionally long one. It got to the point where they could have just been store mannequins being blown by the wind. But Andrew could always spot Jetta's bright orange beanie, bobbing like a life raft, near the Christmas lights that illuminated the quad. And then, in the third quarter of their freshman year, Jetta disappeared. She wasn't at parties, she wasn't in class, she wasn't a beacon of hope in the teeming masses. She simply wasn't. She came back for the summer quarter, a little quieter, harder, as if the summer sun couldn't quite melt her. Andrew didn't ask. Never was one to look a gift horse in the mouth and all. But to anyone else who would ask, she'd come up with different stories. And anyone else might not have noticed, but a couple common threads appeared in her stories. Someone had drowned over spring break someone close. Andrew didn't think it was a family member, but he did think she was there when it happened. But putting the thread together was like trying to do a puzzle in a tornado. He was frankly astonished he had managed to get that far. There's a thing that happens when something hits you. Andrew felt it. He didn't know if anyone else did until he stepped out into his hallway to follow Jetta. It's this thing where, when you're upset, truly, deeply upset, you separate. There's the inside you and the outside you. And the outside you is a shell, but the inside you is raging and lashing out and swirling and banging against the walls of the outside you. And there's no way out. No place for it to escape. So it just keeps banging and getting riled up and screaming inside you, getting bigger and meaner and louder and meanwhile, people who only see the outside you just see someone standing still. Or, in Jetta's case, on the ground, hands bawling and unbawling at her side in the stairwell of the biology building. Andrew spent a lot of Friday nights watching movies, so he knew what should happen. He should go to her and slide down next to her and take his hands in hers and assure her in dulcet baritone that he was there for her. Andrew also knew that if he did that, he'd stumble, land on top of her, possibly pop her arm out of her shoulder 
and Andrew did not have the know-how of Jack Bauer to simply pop it back in. Probably. Or his voice would crack, shattering the illusion of a dulcet baritone. Andrew wondered why those words were stuck in his head, echoing like breaking ice. He wondered that all the way back into the lab, when he was struck with a sudden and singular determination. He pulled from his bag a fully sharpened golf pencil, a legal pad, a magic eraser, and a microcassette recorder. He wrapped himself in a lab coat, a chemical shield helmet, gloves, and a smock. He looked like the fabric version of Iron Man, he decided, as he stepped back into the hallway where Jetta's two selves had died and left her with just one self staring at the ceiling. The golf pencil and pad hit the ground, the former skittering down the hall further than Andrew had anticipated. No point now but to power through. As Jetta looked up at him, anxiety etched across her face. Come on. I need you. It was the closest he had ever come to saying that he loved her. Not that he did. At least he didn't know. And that seemed the sort of thing that people had to know before they knew. All he really did know was that the authorities, and who knows who else, would be looking for the missing mermaid corpse. And he'd like to have as much written down and observed before men in dark suits, or was it white suits, kicked in the doors to the lab and dragged Abigail away. Because, as he learned in med school, every cadaver needs a name. This is Dr. Andrew Ross. The date is June 18, 2017, and I am dissecting a stolen... Andrew paused the tape. How many times do we have to go over this? I want these tapes to be as professional as possible. Yeah, so how is confessing to Grand Theft Murr person going to come across? At least, Andrew noted, she was feeling well enough to be a dick. Small wonders. He rewound the tape. The first day yielded nothing of major import. At least in Jetta's view, Andrew's joy of being the first private scientist to dissect a mermaid was undercut by Jetta's bloody fingertips and the staccato beats her legs were playing against the bench. He reminded himself that he had warned her. There was no telling what each individual organ did. Well, that wasn't entirely true. It was more of a matter of figuring out whether that yellow-green mass was a human liver or a fish swim bladder. There were gills and lungs, and the purpose and efficiency of each was even harder to determine. Andrew noted, as the sun peeked in through the blinds in the lab, that Jetta was still there. He was not used to overnights in the lab with guests. Not that Jetta didn't belong there, more that the nighttime was his time in the lab. He haunted it. He wasn't used to people falling asleep on the lab couch, with the puce-colored stain on the right cushion that he was always too afraid to ask about. After an hour of coaxing, Andrew convinced her to go home and sleep saying that a rested assistant was a better assistant. He probably could have been more delicate than using the phrase assistant, a word Jetta, who was farther along in her PhD program than he was, probably would have killed him over under different circumstances. As it was, Andrew shuffled her off, saying enough was enough. She vanished down the stairs, her zombie shuffle echoing through the building occupied only by three members of the cleaning staff one PhD candidate, and one rotting Abigail, who, which, no, who, Andrew now had to hide 
before his 9 a.m. intro to marine biology class began. Easy enough. Jetta had, long ago, stolen a key to the convenience store on the second floor of the building. Andrew had sworn he would never use it, but he also swore he didn't believe in mythical creatures, and now here he was trying to hide one's body. Which left him, sliding open the accordion gate, unlocking the door, and unplugging the freezer filled with Choco Tacos, Good Bars, and King Cones. Andrew took all of those out, stuffed them in the drink fridge, realizing, of course, the Herculean task that lay before him. He reached back in, grabbed a Choco Taco, and left $1.87 on the counter with a brief note promising to return the key and took off, pushing the bright yellow freezer back to his lap. Abigail, unfortunately, did not fit, at least not flat out. Andrew apologized as he folded her, bent her in all sorts of bizarre shapes until, at long last, with the exception of a wayward half of a fin, he slid the freezer lid shut over her body. Day two was all about the muscles of her torso. Picked apart, analyzed, even sketched. That was all Jetta. She had a delicate touch, detailed pencil strokes. Andrew bet she didn't even dent the paper, so that it looked like the graphite had always been there. Born in the threads of the wood pulp. Andrew knew this was how she worked. Had seen her notes from class. Then her notes on her thesis and in her lab books and then even on the test she'd grade for Professor Zargoza. People tended to draw either random shapes or random, well, random anything when they doodled. Not Jetta. Not since she came back. Andrew would watch as she'd draw the same face over and over, always in different situations. Running, jumping, sitting in class, eating a giant stack of pie labeled every goddamn cake. So maybe she wasn't great at drawing baked goods. And always, always smiling. But he also never had eyes, or suffered severe glaucoma. Either way, it had terrified Andrew to look at them. But he still respected her artistic prowess enough to have her draw out details of connective tissue and muscles that tapered away from the human and more towards not even a fish, but closer to a snake as it passed by where her belly button should have been. Day three. Andrew got an email from one of his professors he TA'd for, reading in no uncertain terms that if he did not show up to do his job, he'd be grading whatever the biological equivalent of rocks for jocks midterms until the day they start studying your fossils. The email went on, but at that point, Andrew had gotten the gist. The entire time, sitting in classes, listening to students drone on and on about experiments that had been done time and time again. There were only two things on his mind. The first was the poster he saw throughout the BSLC reading, Missing Freezer. This is not funny. You are better than this. How did you even get it out of here? The second, and somewhat heavier, was the idea of Jetta sitting alone with Abigail. He wasn't sure whether or not Jetta would even be there or touch her, but certainly doesn't do anything to stop a wandering mind. And so he pictured her sitting there, clawing at her own nails, or clawing at Abigail's body, looking for secrets, or vocal cords, or even a swim bladder. Jetta had always been the type to do, rather than sit, after all, and she'd never had a problem with getting her hands dirty. 
It had gotten to the point that Andrew wondered if he should put a padlock on the freezer. Still, probably better to trust, and not insult Jetta, he figured. He was, however, beginning to wonder whether the poster was right, whether he was, in fact, better than this. Andrew was starting to disagree. On the fourth day, Jetta didn't show up. Andrew made it all the way to the front door of her apartment before chickening out and heading back to the lab. He decided to go on without her, since Abigail had started to smell, and there was only so much a simple can of Febreze could do for a biology lab. It didn't look like Jetta had done anything to her body, so he started with an incision along her back, two long cuts on opposite sides of the dorsal fin, running along her back. It had a curl to it, like Free Willy, but Andrew couldn't tell if this was from before or after she'd been housed in the freezer bin. He followed the spinal column up the base of the skull, and this was where things would, of course, get tricky for him. He couldn't see inside her head unless he used the lab bandsaw, and even though he had dissected more than his fair share of cadavers, there was something about this that simply felt wrong to him. Never mind the fact that the noise from the bandsaw could easily wake up dozens upon dozens of professors and TAs who would pass through or by. The lab was locked, which would only arouse more suspicion. But this was for science, for Jetta. So he set the couch in front of the door to dampen the sound, blasted some music from his iPod, and tucked away. Abigail has a larger-than-expected brain, not larger than a human's, but significantly larger than that of a fish implying sentience or at least some ability for higher thought. He shouted into his recording over the drum stylings of what Andrew could best describe as an epileptic toddler. What he didn't include, in case Jetta listened, so that she didn't get her hopes up, was that Abigail had a fully formed Broca's region. She could talk. On the fifth day, Jetta was back. She wasn't biting her nails anymore which Andrew tried to determine was a good thing or a bad thing. When things got really bad, she used to just sit there, like she had during midterms of the third quarter of her first year. With three consecutive all-nighters, the crushing weight of coursework, jobs, and research, even Andrew had been ready to crack back then. But Jetta had shut down. Now, Andrew was left wondering which direction her compulsion had moved in, for better or worse. Andrew got his answer, though. When the door burst in, the government had tracked them down, finally. Either that, or the shopkeeper had hired two very diligent bounty hunters to find the missing freezer. They wore suits of gray and olive, lazy camouflage, as Jetta would call it, and had a court order, some handcuffs, and probably unnecessary artillery. They came in, shouting orders to get down, orders to shut up. Who were they? Where did they come from? What did they want with the specimen? Who were they working for? That one came up a lot. All Andrew could think was that his notes were no longer of scientific integrity, but would make for an excellent Orwellian broadcast. Jetta, however, was thinking a bit too fast. Jetta ran headfirst at one of them, knocking him over, hitting his head against a cabinet. The ooze Abigail had been leaking onto the floor for the past five days probably helped her out. Andrew ran to help, but the other agent was too fast and wrapped his giant hands like oars around her shoulders and threw her body into Andrew's. Down they went, Andrew's tape recorder skittering across the ground until it crunched under the second agent's boot. Andrew let out a whimper as the ribbon popped out amongst the metal. Meanwhile, Jetta was scrambling to throw him off of her, 
She shouted, she hit, she shouted more. I have to save him! Her. The word echoed in Andrew's head, but the correction was probably a bit unwelcome as she bounced off the now ready agent's torsos. In the end, she lay handcuffed at their feet, next to Andrew, who couldn't bear to look at her, as they put the pieces and parts of Abigail into a big black bag that now seemed to swallow her up. Andrew laughed to himself, that it was fitting the frozen mermaid looked like she was drowning. Or maybe that was just him trying to find a metaphor, because that's what people do in tragedy. Look for meaning. But Jetta wasn't looking. She was up, running, still, towards Abigail. The inside her had a place to go, finally, forward. One last rush, the agent saw it coming a mile away. The first one, the taller one, sidestepped her. He could have been a running back in college, maybe. And then he slammed her up against Abigail's body, and a low moan, like ice breaking, filled the room. Everything stops. Jetta stands up a bit, then leans her weight on her again. Again. Andrew is back out on the beach that winter, hearing the sound of echoing across the ice field of Lake Michigan. Jed is several steps back and the agents have picked up their pace, and the only thing left of Abigail is the puddle of ooze Jed has sunken into, hands bawling and unbawling again. She has no place left to go, again. And there's nothing for Andrew to say, but he doesn't run away. He just sits there, still cuffed, It's eating at Andrew to know where the noise came from, but he doesn't ask. Just like the student who finds them doesn't ask why they're handcuffed and smell like fish. That night, Andrew asks Jetta out on a date. It took five minutes of silence that could have been 30 seconds, but could have been 30 years before she says yes, as if she doesn't believe it herself. As if he doesn't believe it either. And Andrew walks away to make plans, and Jetta is patient for a week, and then prods him and they go on a date. Then another. And another. And on the third date, she tells him about her brother who drowned while she was supposed to be watching him. The boy from her doodles. The silence in their first year. All of it makes sense. I couldn't lose anyone else. The line comes after a now comfortable, comparatively, silence, halfway between the end of the french fries and the start of the strawberry banana crepes. Jetta, who's usually so quick to act, to speak, lets the water in her glass settle. I don't know if I'm apologizing or what, but yeah, I just... That's why I got how I did with Abigail. But she was already dead. Jetta makes the face she makes when she doesn't like something. Pulled all to the left, snap, release. I just wanted to make sure it wasn't that I didn't have, you know, the chance to save her and failed, like I did with Brandon. Andrew mulls it over, tracing the ring of his plate with a fork gently so that it doesn't screech or make a noise, like it isn't even happening. He writes his questions into the whipped cream. What exactly do we owe the dead? What do we do to show them they aren't gone forever? Or at least that there's something that sticks around even when they don't. He lets the silence sit, though. Not out of fear of saying the wrong thing, just out of not wanting to say anything. 
The next morning, as they slowly unwind their legs and reach for their phones and try to remember which of their apartments this is, Andrew gets a text alert. Another cold front. He doesn't show Jetta, but leaves after breakfast. He rents a boat from the point and is ready to push off the small dock when he catches sight of Jetta, looking down at him from the grassy hill. She's got the orange beanie on, but her hair is still whipping around it, and she's got her arms crossed. He waits for her to get on, and they head out, the waves already starting to pick up, the wind already so sharp you could smell it. They don't say a word to each other until Andrew slows to a halt. He holds up a small metal tube that lets off a vibrant flashing light and pings every few seconds. What the hell is it? I got a new recorder. This one's waterproof. I figured I'd warn them about the weather. Andrew gives her a look. How did you plan on warning them? Her face is still. Suddenly everything is to him. He can make out one hair on her chin that she always had to tweeze but ignored in the winter. He can tell she has to do this so that she doesn't owe the dead anything else. This she owes to the living. He can tell he loves her and he can't stop her even as she moves deliberately, slowly, to the edge of the boat. What are you doing? He has to ask. He knows, but it's still one of those questions that comes out in movies because it has to come out. Fake or real, it has to. I'll take your stupid thingy, too. One way or another, they're going to know. I'm going to save them this time. And she vanishes in the water. And everything speeds back up and he knows she won't come back up. So he grabs her orange beanie from the surface before it sinks and heads back to the dock. He's okay, he tells the police. And he's okay, he tells Jetta's mom over the phone. And he is. He goes home to an empty bed, a cold apartment, and a freezer. He has no intention of ever returning. Jetta's wet beanie freezing a hole in his pocket. Hidden Signal, The Things We Owe is narrated by Ashton Harold, written by Adam Rosenthal, directed by Lawrence Zanelli, executive produced by Rob Herding, Sandra Yi Ling, and Shin Yin Hi Yu, co-producers Lawrence Zanelli, Sarah Ma, and Tom Breck, original score and composition by Darren Johnson, audio engineering and editing by Sarah Ma, script supervisor Tom Breck. Special thanks to Jack Friedman and Nick Shanks. This podcast was recorded under a SAG-AFTRA collective bargaining agreement. Hidden Signal is a Q-Code production. Sound recording copyright 2023 by Q-Code Media Inc. Everyone needs a break from the real world. That's why we played games as kids, and that's why we should play games as adults. I'm Troy Lavalley. And I'm Joe O'Brien. And back in 2015, we started a podcast called The Glass Cannon Podcast, a show made up of comedians and actors playing a fantasy role-playing game. And now is the perfect time to start listening because we just started a brand new story. It's basically Lord of the Rings meets Game of Thrones meets X-Files. Search for The Glass Cannon Podcast on your podcast app of choice. Hey, life is hard, so come play pretend with us.